this is the conclusion of a novel in which the narrator is um, unreliable. Characters at the edges and on the edge. Remaining a perpetual possibility. Lonely, violent, deeply American life. Only in a world of speculation. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance. Very fine is my Valentine. Very fine and very mine. You're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss with John Pistelli. Great and puffed up with his retinue. All right, everybody, you're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss. I'm your co-host, John Pistelli, and I'm here with my Mixmaster extraordinaire, Sam. Good to be here, John. What are we talking about today? So today I thought we would do a sequel to our last episode. Last episode, we talked about William James, the psychologist and philosopher. And today I thought we would talk about his brother, Henry, whom I've also just been reading. I just uh, published an essay recently on his late novel the ambassadors so i thought that it would be a nice sequel going from the uh from mm. brother william to brother henry there is a, a famous line about the brothers from rebecca west the british writer whose life story is also interesting that wasn't a real name slept with hg wells uh wrote a thousand page book about yugoslavia but anyway um rebecca mm. west said um that william james wrote psychology and philosophy as if he were a novelist and mm. henry james wrote novels as if he were a philosopher now what does she, what does she mean by that i think what she means is that william james has this very um it's a first of all he's a style that's very conversational very punchy very polemical very energetic it's not this dry style of the sort of geometric treatise because obviously as we discussed last week his philosophy is one of enmeshment in the struggles of the world and then the other thing about william is he reduces or well reduce maybe isn't the word but he links philosophical ideas to human temperaments yes so it's almost as if they're characters contending in the way that characters in a novel contend so yeah. that's william I was uh, listening to uh, Pragmatism on audiobook. Uh-huh. It's on YouTube, and the guy is a Levervox too. And the guy who's doing it is some sort of Scandinavian, maybe Swede, uh-huh. reading Pragmatism really eloquently and and with a great stability. I, c- I actually can't think of a more pragmatic thing than a Swede recording Twelve Hours of William James. Like, that's <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, I got to a point. I was like, I was at or nearing sleep <laughs> with with cookie crumbs on my on my sternum mm-hmm. <laughs> listening to this recording. And he said, said something, William James said something about, it. he's like, you know, consider the hand, look at the hand. It's good for some things, mm-hmm. but the things it's not good for, we use our feet. Mm-hmm. It's very novelistic. That is, <laughs> yeah, it's very vivid. It's very, well, right. I mean, that's the thing. It's he's, he's a philosopher of the body of the, the body in the world and how that affects the mind. Now his brother is a novelist, but as a novelist, he's not that concerned about the body. His Mm. concerns are psychology as it interacts with society and social custom and his book, his books and more and more as they go on, because there's these, as I'll explain in a minute, there's these phases of Henry James's career. There's very little body in Henry James. There's very little, um, of the sensory. He doesn't give you a lot of physical description of 
the city of uh, of 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 sensations that the characters feel. For him, it was all about the mind encountering society, the minds of different people encountering each other as they negotiated their very complicated social and crypto-erotic relations. And then I think the other thing Rebecca West meant was that his style is not like Williams' style. It's not, it doesn't feel colloquial. It doesn't feel as energetic. It's very long sentences that draw very fine distinctions that create very vague impressions of the ambiguity of social relations. And and which class of people, if you're going for all that, all those colors, which class of people would you make your subject? He mainly writes about the upper class. About the aristocrats. Yeah, about aristocrats. Or, I mean, often he writes about the famous, his famous subject is the international theme, which is the clash between Europe and America. And often it's depicted as the clash between a European hereditary aristocracy, uh, the, you know, who have had their titles for a thousand years versus Americans who uh, have entered this aristocracy by virtue of very recently acquired wealth and maybe don't have the years upon years of cultural accoutrements that in Europe would be seen as naturally to go with that wealth because there is no aristocracy in the technical sense of a, of a titled nobility in the United States. To get after Henry James as novelist of the mind, novelist who, who writes philosophically, there's this, there's this moment in The Art of Fiction, his essay, where... He, he gets after some of these things. He explains himself. And do you agree that, you know, the, the best poets, or the, the best novelists are themselves critics? And they, they almost create the taste that, that they then serve with their art. At, like, as a critic, they create those tastes. This is for the avant-garde artist or the, the, the artist who doesn't have time to die and 70 years later his art is enjoyed. He needs to discipline his audience in his lifetime. Yes. To enjoy his work. Yes. Um, there's something something totally badass about that. Mm-hmm. But do you think do you think with all that in mind, do you think James is doing this in the art of, fi- of, of fiction? Check this out. Experience is never limited and it is never complete. It is a, an immense sensibility, a kind of huge spider web of the finest silken threads suspended in the chamber of consciousness and catching every airborne particle in its tissue. It is the very atmosphere of the mind. And when the mind is imaginative, much more when it happens to be that of a man of genius, it takes to itself the faintest hints of life. It converts the very pulses of the air into revelation. The only obligation to which in advance we may hold a novel without incurring the accusation of being arbitrary is that it be interesting. And that the good health of an art which undertakes so immediately to reproduce life must demand that it be perfectly free. Must demand that it be perfectly free. it is at liberty to accomplish this result of interesting us strike me as innumerable strike me as innumerable and such as can only suffer from being marked out or fenced in by prescription 
they are as various as the temperament of man, and they are successful in proportion as they reveal a particular mind, different from others. Reveal a particular mind, feel a particular mind. A novel is in its broadest definition a personal impression of life, that, to begin with, constitutes its value, which is greater or less according to the intensity of the impression. But there will be no intensity at all, and therefore no value, unless there is freedom to feel and say. The tracing of a line to be followed, of a tone to be taken, of a form to be filled out, is a limitation of that freedom and a suppression of the very thing that we are most curious about. So this essay of, I think it's from 1884, right? Um, and so that's the middle period of James's career. And he's responding to another essay by a guy that, a novelist that we don't read anymore named Walter Besant, who is, um, funnily, I actually just looked this up now. Walter Besant's brother was the husband of Annie Besant, who was a, a feminist occultist um, secularist, socialist, and one of the founders of Indian nationalism. Uh, Indian? Indian. She was British, not Indian okay. at all, but she ends up going to India. Yeah. So she has an interesting life. Um, and, and some of our listeners, um, whether because they're occultists or feminists or whatever, will probably know who she is. But her brother was is a forgotten novelist, but he apparently wrote an essay on the novel. And James's essay, The Art of Fiction, is a reply. And one of the things James is most concerned to do in the art of fiction is to knock down what he thinks of as invidious distinctions between different genres of novel. Mm -hmm. So he refers to the novel of character versus the novel of situation, which would be one would be a character study without much plot and one would be like a heavily plotted novel. A similar distinction is between the romance and the novel. So the romance is a, basically an adventure story or has supernatural elements. So Hawthorne's novels with their supernatural elements are romances. He refers to Robert Louis Stevenson's adventure novels like Treasure Island. The Ingenious Hidalgo Don Quixote. Yes. Yeah. That's kind of like uh, the, where the romance and the novel first like cross their, their path. That's um, the OG pappy. Yeah. The... <laughs> <laughs> um, and the romance was having a big revival in the 18. Uh, 80s because George Eliot had just died and she was the queen of realism. And there was a sense that men uh, had in the late Victorian period that women had sort of crowded them out of the field of fiction, kind of similar to some of the discourse we hear now. And they said, women are just interested in, you know, crinolines and teacups and we need a uh, we need uh, to, to get the balls back in fiction. So let's the Balzac. <laughs> well, sort of, yeah, that too. <laughs> That's my one Balzac joke for the entire. I will never make a Balzac joke, even though every time you say him, I want to. That's it. I'm done. That's <laughs> right. my quota. One ever. You heard it now, and it was. I thought it was artful. I agree. I enjoyed yeah. it. Um, yeah. But yeah, we need we need Kipling. We need uh, boys' adventure stories, imperial romances, Conrad. Stevenson. We need all these men telling manly stories. And so this is the circumstance James is in, though James obviously is the inheritor of the tradition of, of George Eliot and Jane Austen, um, is in some structural sense a female writer. Um, so he wants to knock down these invidious distinctions between the domestic novel and the adventuresome romance, between the plotless character study and the plotted, ah. uh, the plotted novel of situation. That's interesting. 
So you got you got these decades of all this these great novels by women and men, these sentimental novels mm-hmm. like George Eliot, Woo Leering Heights, mm-hmm. Bron- the Bronte Sisters, yeah, Richardson, mm-hmm. Jane Austen. Yeah, the domestic novel had an enormous hegemony in English literature going back to the 18th century. Super well written, tight rhetoric, mm-hmm. tight character development. Yeah, great tempos, nice moral result at the end of it. Yeah civilizing you get to manners of the aristocrats people want the money mm-hmm. get the money mm-hmm. don't don't um don't smash out of wedlock yeah you know yeah put a ring on it right um <laughs> yeah there are novels about how to unite the money and the love yeah. and the nation you know that's sentiment yeah yeah a feat a feminine a feat, right? What does that word mean? Uh, what's the? There's no polite way to say what it means. Um, I don't. I mean, I don't really know what it means. It means like if you call somebody a feat, it's like it's calling them a pussy. Or Whoa! Like, <laughs> I mean, that's, I told you, there's no polite. Whoa! <laughs> there's no polite. I'm gonna start using that synonym because people uh, don't understand it. No, no. You could. The poets could make a lot of puns with a feat. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sells some feet pics on your OnlyFans, yeah. um, but um, James, I think, is nervous about these distinctions. He thinks that they are too that they're they're interposing these categories onto fiction that don't really matter. Because he says he says in the essay something like, you know, there's only good novels and bad novels. A novel of if a novel is about an adventure and characters going on an adventure. If it's going to be lively and make you care about it, then the characters have to be well-developed and it has to be well-written. And a novel that's just a character study of somebody living a normal life, every element of that person's experience will form a plot. So Mm -hmm. these distinctions, he says, from the producer's point of view, from the writer's point of view, Mm -hmm. don't matter that much because what you need to do is make the thing live. And so what he's getting at in the the comparison of of experience to a spider web is that you can't draw distinctions between different types of experience as if one were better suited to a novel or not because experience takes in every single thing that happens. So he's trying to open the form. Yeah, and later in the essay, it says if he knows that there's going to be this controversy about cultural appropriation, because he quotes Walter Besant, and Walter Besant is laying down some rules. Is that the guy's name, Walter? Yeah, Walter Besant um, is laying down some rules for the novelist. And he says, Laying down some rules. And he says, if you are a novelist of the lower middle class, you should not write about the aristocracy. And James says very dryly in the, in the essay, he says something like, um, uh, well, that remark was a bit chilling. (laughs) And he says, actually that's nonsense because what you need to be a novelist is what he calls a sensibility on which nothing is lost. And what he means by that is that the tiniest scrap of observation or experience you have, if you are a great novelist, you shall be able to spin into, I use the web metaphor advisedly, a persuasive novel. And he talks about, he gives an anecdote about a, uh, a writer he calls a woman writer of genius that he knows. Um, 
Unfortunately, I think this person has been forgotten. She's named in the in the footnotes to the edition I read, but um an immense spider web. A kind of huge spider web. Finest silken thread suspended in the chamber of consciousness. So the woman of genius is the daughter of Henry. Uh, no, what the fuck is his name? Is the daughter of William Makepeace Thackeray named Anne Thackeray. And he's referring to a forgotten novel she wrote about a French Protestant youth. And James says that this is a great novel. It's a fine novel. And how did she write it? How did she, this woman who's not French and not young, come to write a great novel about French Protestant youth? He said she was in France and she passed by a doorway and she looked in the doorway and she saw some French Protestant youths. Um, she said, I'll just read it to you. She says, um, she ascended a staircase past an open door where in the household of a pasteur, some of the young Protestants were seated at a table round a finished meal. The glimpse made a picture. It lasted only a moment, but that moment was experience. She had got her direct personal impression, and she turned out her type. She knew what youth was and what Protestantism. She also had the advantage of having seen what it was to be French, so that she converted these ideas into a concrete image and produced a reality. Above all, However, she was blessed with the faculty, which when you give it an inch takes an L and which for the artist is much greater is a much greater source of strength than any accident of residence or of place in the social scale. The power to guess the unseen from the seen, to trace the implication of things, to judge the whole piece by the pattern, the condition of feeling life in general so completely that you are well on your way to knowing any particular corner of it. This cluster of gifts may almost be said to constitute experience. So what he means is he quotes Mr. Besant saying something like, write what you know. Yeah. And he says, no, bullshit. What you need to do is have the, uh, the, the strength of inner sensibility to take the littlest pieces of experience and turn them into the richness in fiction. Convert them into... Convert them. Into grander... Podcast abyss. Grander, yeah. And, you know, there's some movement between the particular and the universal, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, a key, a key um, skill that one learns through literature, that, uh, that movement between the two, and which serves one very well in life. Um, yeah, that's generally said to be what a novel has to do, is that the characters can't just be weirdos. They have to somehow stand in for a type of person. A type of general or even universal experience. I think that it's... If you're reading a novel about Protestants about French Protestants, <laughs> to just mm -hmm. keep going with that example, the characters will be in some ways representative of French Protestants in general, that you're encountering a social type through these individuals. Now this, he calls it a sensibility. Yeah. A capability, a mind that amalgamates and devours experience. Mm-hmm. To to use Elliot, this is uh, this is the this is all description of 
of the, the, the artistic vision or the strength of what a novelist can do. Mm-hmm. I think he ends his preface in The Ambassadors. It's the novel still remains the most elastic, independent, and profound of like the art forms. Yeah. There's this thing that because of this thing we're describing can be done. Right. And it and should be done and should not be limited by forms, but should use forms to create new avenues of freedom of consciousness and yeah. characterization. Yeah. Do you think people because people don't I'm gonna talk about contemporary education, contemporary literature, but this capability is not heralded it. Heralded it. it. It's not today. Like this machinery, inner innate sensibility. It's it's not because it it it, it almost isn't limited to forms of culture and forms of identity and experience. It's an expansive, devouring machine, and that is disconcerting to some of the more some of the more culturally specific movements in literature. Is it not? Am I am I off base here? I mean, could you? Am I, Could you say what you mean a little? I think you're being using euphemism. Am I diving or? into a tank of? <laughs> I think I have an answer to what you're trying to say, but could you just say it more forthrightly? I'm saying what James is getting at here. You know the 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 what do you call them? The, what are they? The woke. Yeah. What are the woke? Yeah. The academic. The woke academics. Right. The wokest of the woke. Right. Um, like this woman I went into at university one time. I went to to meet with this head of a department. I want to check out their program. And uh, and she was, she was like, ah, you know, I wrote all this shit on Derrida and, you know, all these, all these, this kind of, um, you know, post-structuralist and, and de- post-colonial. And, and I was like, I was like, do you guys have like a class on Faulkner? Mm-hmm. Like I could read like every Faulkner novel. Right. She was like, no, no. we don't do that here. Yeah. Yeah, we don't we, do we major. Don't, we don't do that here. Yeah. Because Faulkner was in that thing too. It was like the ability to take the novelist, this, what James is describing and like, does, is that threatening? Is that, is it, they don't, they don't herald that. They don't spread that. They don't promote that. They don't, they don't share that as a virtue of and the artistry of the novel now because it violates a sort of political ideology, ideological um, 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 commitment to what literature has done, which is, you know, been destructive and ex- exclusive and dominated by white males and what literature should do, which would be a specific, particular, culturally protected and um, a way to express the identities of marginalized groups. Right. Yeah. Good question. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a complicated answer. Because there is a, there there is a woke Henry James, like Henry James, the the queer destabilizer of uh, you know Henry James, who never gives us a good marriage, who destabilizes the marriage plot to himself. His sexuality is, um, his sexuality is an open question. I mean, it's not it's not as simple a case as Melville or Whitman, where you you read them and you're like, oh, they wanted to have sex with men. Uh, it's a much more complicated thing. Fuck a dude on a boat. Exactly. Uh, yeah. No, it's much. I think it's much more complicated than Henry James. And I think that maybe now the perhaps overdeveloped vocabulary we now have for different kinds of identities could be applied to the, the asexual or something. Um, I think Henry James is in a sense only only ever fucking language somehow. Um, but nevertheless. So there is a woke Henry James, and you can, you know, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick was a great champion of Henry James. Um, but 
Um, I'm talking about artistry, though. Artistry, yeah. The threat yeah. Of, yeah. of the artist, whether it comes from a white male identity or not, right. could come from Emily Bronte had this. You know what I mean? Yes. It doesn't matter. But that this thing that is not, not conditioned by identity, or I, that's what I believe. Yeah. Call me a, you know what, but that's why I believe what he's describing is not specific to particular identity. Mm-hmm. That ability, that machinery in and of itself threatens the particularity of contemporary literature. Yes. So they don't teach it as a value. Right. No, really, th- that's how you throw down. That's how you write yeah. monstrously badass novels. Right. No, you're right. And you see that. I mean, the biggest, the funny thing is that the biggest symptom today of that is the, the autofiction the everybody taking refuge in the eye and the particular experience of the eye, as if to say that you can't write about anything other than that eye and everything you do write about has to pass through that eye. And it's supposed to be this kind of gesture of humility that you don't speak for anyone else. Because I think that's the that's the imputed danger to this style of novel, that you catch everything in your web so you end up speaking for... Um, characters of different classes, different genders, different sexualities, different races, et cetera, et cetera. And you do, um, necessarily. And, and that's part of what the artistry is to be able to take your little scraps of experience and generalize from them into a bigger picture. And so, yeah, this, this I novel or the other thing is the refuge in fantasy, because there is an aside in, in the art of fiction where James says, why, well, you know, he says, I just read two novels. Uh, one was Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson, and one which we all still read, and one was Cherie by Edmond de Goncourt, which we don't. Oh, wait, wait. <laughs> which we don't still read. Play excellent, um, mon ami. <laughs> and James says Cherie sucked. It wasn't a very good book, and Treasure Island is an excellent book. C'est merde. And it's a merde. Uh, <laughs> uh, but he says, and he's being very magnanimous there. He's saying, "Look, I'm not some." snob i'm not above reading a great novel about pirates and a great novel can be about pirates but he does say the problem here is that the reason i i prefer realism to what stevenson is doing is he says i he says sherry was about a child and treasure island is about pirates and he says i've been a child i haven't been a pirate and so i can judge a novel about a common human experience in ways that I can't judge a novel about an uncommon human experience. Mm. And I think what he's getting at there is that realism is the more honorable mode because it confronts common experience and doesn't fly to a fantastic... Robert Louis Stevenson hadn't been a pirate either. Uh, it, there's this flight to fantasy, to to science fiction, to dystopia... Um, that I think we could also see as symptomatic of not wanting to confront the present and all the people who live in it. Okay, okay. And it's that artistry that we we draw back from. But if that's if we draw back from it, what I, man, I, what artistry is left? What are what artistry is well, left? It, it's the kind of the lyrical voice of the autofiction writer, who's really a kind of lyrical poet expressing the monologue of the eye, which is artistry. But James, I think, probably thinks a weaker one, and so do I. Because the epic is better than the lyric, and the novel inherits the epic. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then the other thing there is to say about that, though, is. Um, 
this idea that the 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 James's idea of the the vast spider web, which I think he gets from Middlemarch, by the way, uh, by George Eliot, um, is or Dickinson, mm-hmm. or Dickinson, Emily Dickinson. Oh yeah, she loved the spider. She did, but was he reading her? I don't know. Because hmm. she was um, eclipsed. Hmm. Did Henry James read Emily Dickinson? Scholars write in. Scholars write in. Um, but there are the thing is that the idea that the the mastery that you have to have to embrace the whole, to to weave the whole spider web or to comprehend the whole spider web, that that is some kind of white male mastery, is um, belied by the fact that there are many great novels in that vein written by people who weren't white and or male. Whether we want to talk about Middlemarch, without which James wouldn't have written anything great, or you know, or James Baldwin writing Giovanni's Room, or Toni Morrison writing Paradise, or um, or more recent novels, uh, Valeria Lewis Sally, etc. And you can tell with this guy, and th- th- what this is a universal. This I, I hate to see this. I hate to see this put in a box and prohibited. Mm-hmm. Um, but this guy just really wanted to write his ass off. Yeah, he wanted to create a taste in which an artist could could exp- he like you said he was he was um, he was making love with the language. Yeah, and he wanted to write his ass off, and he wanted to have forms that could do it. And, this, and to me, like he says in the art of fiction, ca- catching catching the very note and trick the strange irregular rhythm of life that is the attempt whose strenuous force keeps fiction upon her feet. Yeah, I just want to write, man. I just want to throw down. I want to create formal expectations mm-hmm. of a genre that allows me to throw down. I want maximal total um, artistic um, possibility in this form. That is a, that is a value that, you know, if we suppress that, then quite simply we're, 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 we're desiccating potentials for genius, regard, regardless of, of your identity, your ascriptive identities or the places you come from. Everyone should be empowered by this mode of absolutely throwing the, down with the English language. That's to me what he's about here. Yeah, and, I agree. And enabling guys like Joyce and Elliot and and Ellison and and um, all those guys to to do just that. Yeah, and he says um, it's interesting. He talks about art and he uses the word art, and he says, and this will hark back to I think a conversation we had two episodes ago. He says. Um, Art in our Protestant communities, where so many things have got so strangely twisted about, is supposed in certain circles to have some vaguely injurious effect upon those who make it an important consideration, who let it weigh in the balance. It is assumed to be opposed in some mysterious manner to morality, to amusement, to instruction. And so he's saying that there's this form of Christianity that has this, you know, prohibition on the graven image that's that's banned this idea of art as a vocation and he says that the later in the essay he says not in so many words but he says the morality of art is that is how well it represents life and if you have a fine sensibility and a capacious sensibility and you've produced a true picture of the rhythm of life then that's moral art and it's kind of up to the reader what to do with it but it's not preaching a sermon or being didactic, telling a story that has some fable-like moral ending. And, you know, he's not, he's not easy to read. No. He gets harder and harder, too. 
because he has, so there's three rough phases to Henry James's career, the, you know, the early, middle and late. Um, and the early and middle James, well, the middle, as the name implies, is kind of the way station between the two, but his best works, in my opinion, are his middle period. So the early, when he starts out, he's a social realist. You know, he's, it's when you read an early work by his like Daisy Miller or Washington Square, it doesn't feel that different from Jane Austen or George Eliot or, or, you know, even to some extent Dickens. And he gets more and more psychological and the external world sort of fades away more and more. And then what, and, and that produces his great middle period masterpieces, the portrait of a lady in the Bostonians that are works almost perfectly poised between realism and modernism in their ability to canvas a social world, but their love of psychology and use of mm-hmm. rich metaphoric language. Mm-hmm. Then in the 1890s, what happens is he decides he wants to become a playwright and he mm-hmm. writes a play that basically gets hooted off the stage. Hooted. Hooted. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and uh, booed, uh, jeered, um, derided, um, laughed off the stage. Um, and he goes back to novel writing. But there's a couple, a couple things happen here. One is that he kept this idea that the way to incorporate art into fiction was to make it more like drama. Because drama has certain rules that fiction doesn't. Mm-hmm. And he was famously kind of disturbed by novels. I think it was of Tolstoy that he said this because he read War and Peace or some of War and Peace, I think was the story. And he said, this is a loose, baggy monster. There's, a loose, baggy monster. Yeah. There's no discipline here. It's all over the place. There's no artistry. And I think he fell the way. And in, in his great essay on Balzac. No? Okay, I paused for you to make a joke. Um, I said I'm not, I, that's my one. I pressed the button. There's no, there will be no f- further attempts. Okay, I just thought I'd this give is you a the pra- opportunity. Th- we practice discipline here. Okay. This is a show about discipline. <laughs> so he says in his great essay on Balzac, he says, uh, Balzac, his novels are maps that become so detailed and large that they they sort of are the territory they describe. Uh, there's no difference between the map and mm-hmm, the territory. Mm-hmm. And I think he wanted something more shapely, more formed than that. Not loose and baggy. Not loose and baggy. So he didn't like Tolstoy. He's uncomfortable with Balzac. He, you know, Turgenev was more his speed or Flaubert, these more formalistic novelists. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's one thing that he thought that novels had to have the rules of drama. And he said, dramatize, dramatize. That's the origin of show, don't tell. You know, everything he comes up with will be codified as creative writing instruction in the MFA programs. And so how are you going to do that? Well, he decides that the way to do that is you need to do away with the omniscient narrator, that sort of George Eliot, Charles Dickens, Henry Fielding, that narrator who knows everything, who talks to you, says, gentle reader, we move our scene now to London. Right. And then goes, hops from mind to mind. Right, yes. He said this, and she thought that, and then he thought that, and then he said that. James says, no, let's do away with that, because that's how you get a baggy monster. You have this high-flying narrator. Mm. And he says, let's keep the third-person narrator. He didn't like first-person. He said, the problem with the first-person is the first person narrator is doing a rhetorical performance and that's kind of alienating. Yeah. And we don't know what they're thinking because they're trying to put us off with this rhetorical performance. Okay. So he says, you know, I'm not saying do with first person narrator, 
but do a third person narrator that at any given moment in the novel mm-hmm. is clearly only inhabiting one point of view. Ooh. And so in The Ambassadors, he carries that through the whole novel. It's narrated in the third person, but we only ever see from the point of view of the main character, Lambert Strather. And in his other novels, he's a little bit looser, but he'll do things like we only see from the point of view of one character in one chapter at a time. Now, this is beginning to um, uh, uh, border on very important um, uh, literary technique, right? Yeah. Which would be the coveted indirect. Precisely. The indirect. The free indirect discourse. The free indirect discourse. Right. So that for our- The FID. The FID. Yeah. um, I mean, you got to know about this. Yes. For our listeners, if you don't know. um, So free indirect discourse is this. So- This is money. It is. Yeah. Yeah. This is a key technique in fiction. So let well, let's back all the way up. So there's direct discourse, and direct discourse in a novel would be this. Yeah. Um, it's like you tell your roommate, like, hey, don't eat my pizza in the fridge. That's like direct. Well, no, it's more <laughs> – well, that that's true. But there's – it would also be he thought, quote, I hope he doesn't eat my pizza. Okay, okay. So if it's in quotation marks, it's direct discourse. Okay. Indirect discourse would be, he told him not to eat the pizza, or he hoped he wouldn't eat the pizza. It's where the narrator straightforwardly informs you what's been said or thought without giving it verbatim in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. So direct discourse, he thought, I hope he, I, he, hold on, direct discourse, I hope he doesn't eat my pizza. Indirect discourse, he hoped he wouldn't eat his pizza. Free indirect discourse is when you have a third person narrator whose voice blends with the inner voice of the character in ways that aren't marked by quotation marks. That's what makes it free. Okay. So here it is. Here it is. He looked at his roommate. He noticed his roommate's eyes going on to he had pizza his pizza. Eyes. He, had, he had pizza eyes. <laughs> uh, uh, was he going to eat the fucking pizza? So there's no quotation marks. That seems to belong to the narrator's discourse. But where did it come from, if not the character? And and usually it's marked by things like swear words or Or, colloquial language or markers of time and place. Or like like, possession of qualities or objects that 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 character has. Yes. Like, was he going to eat the, was he going to eat the fucking pizza and like, and play with, with, with the boomerang? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And we know that that guy is the only one in that house. (laughs) Who cares about the boomerang? boomerang. Yeah, exactly. So it's a way of routing third person narration in the first person. And eventually this will become stream of consciousness in Joyce and Wolf where the the inner life of the character briefly takes over the third person perspective for pages at a time. Free and direct discourse is total money, man. Yeah. That is like it, could you think of an analogy in any other field of like a de- a development or an innovation that affected a field the way that FID affected novel writing? Is there like a comparable I would. Th- I, I wonder if this goes too far, but I was going to say the invention of uh, of perspective in painting. 
in the Renaissance. Wow. Spoken like a true modernist. Yeah. I mean, it's a powerful device. Um, and and it's, it's very unusual to see narrators in the third person not follow these Henry Jamesian rules. There are some, and, and like for, a good example is your beloved Thomas Pynchon, but the ones who do it are considered experimentalist, postmodernist, like they have these epithets attached to them, like they're writing something well, you know, unusual. The, the secret is that most of the great postmodernists are actually modernists. Yeah, yeah. And they're drawing on long traditions of their own that go before Henry James, like they sound like Fielding or Dickens or... Yeah. Or something. Um, Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're a postmodernist. Right. <laughs> it means that you're sensitive and <laughs> you care about things and that you want things to turn out right. Did I wound you, you with you my reference to Dickens? And you don't, <laughs> or Pinchon. not quite sure what's going on. Do you and, see how I just confused Pinchon and Dickens? That's you confused how, me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what does Pinchon say? Uh, paranoia is the garlic in life's kitchen. You can never have enough of it. That's untrue, by the way. That's not, that, that's don't, not, don't, it's no. funny and <laughs> it's, it's good within the context of a novel, but that's actually for our viewers. I'm being responsible here to like a little, yes. a little, um, public service announcement is like you can have too much paranoia right so that's one thing i was elaborating a couple different things that lead to james's late style so this his failure at the drama and his desire to find a dramatic technique which ends up being the point of view is one thing that leads to his late fiction another thing is a little more mundane which is that he had um arthritis or carpal tunnel or something. And so, and this was in the period before even typewriters or, or typewriters were just coming in and he used to write by hand. So he goes from writing by hand to dictation. Mm. And so now his fiction is really an oral form mm -hmm. or an oral form, whichever you, whether you like the mouth or the ear better. Um, but he ends up being, uh, uh, <laughs> I almost said a dictator, uh, but he, he is, he's, he's dictating and he really did supposedly speak this way. Like he spoke the way he wrote these long sentences with many clauses. He took and, no prisoners. And infinite qualifications. Yeah. It would take him, I think there's a, a reminiscence Virginia Woolf wrote where she met him when she was a little girl and he takes like five minutes to get through a sentence. And he's like, I should say, uh, as it were, little girl, the weather, um, so to speak, uh, not mm -hmm. to hesitate is is mm -hmm. fine if mm -hmm. indeed you enjoy mm -hmm. this type. You know that kind of crossed in patterns of yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of euphemisms and qualifications and quote you know distancing quotation marks. So his fiction becomes hard to read for two reasons. One is that you're always lodged within the perspective of a character who himself or herself does not always know exactly what's going on because you don't have the guidance of an omniscient objective narrator. Don't know what's happening. So, for instance, for large parts of the ambassador, Strether is in the dark as to the relationships that are happening around him. There's two characters that he thinks are in a platonic relationship, and in fact, they're having a sexual affair. And he doesn't really realize this until the end of the novel. Oh, boy. And you, I think, as the, I think most readers get it 
long before he does. But the point is that he's a little bit confused. His vision is obscured. You're mm-hmm. limited to what he knows or is capable of. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is this incredibly verbose, circumlocutious, paraphrastic, euphemistic language that James takes on the voice of high society. Paraphrastic now, that's tell me what that means. That means it's really a synonym for circumlocutious, like talking around a subject. Uh, rather than stating well, you're directly, being paraphrastic about your definition of. I, I am. <laughs> <laughs> so that is why the Ambassadors by Henry James is a difficult novel to read. Well, do you have a do you have a passage? I, 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 this has been lovely discussion, but do you have a passage in the Ambassadors that maybe exemplifies some of the things we've been talking about? Some of the, the ideas of the spider, what the chamber of consciousness, the the, the catching of the grains of details and by the novelist that that gives um gives an example of how henry james uses circumlocution the the expanse of his sentences maybe in aristocratic setting or do you have do you have something there is um if you look at the old the the ambassadors used to be published in a norton critical edition i don't think it is anymore but i was looking at the old one in the library the other day and there's an essay on it it's 20 pages long Mm -hmm. And it's by Ian Watt, the great historian of the novel. Um, And he wrote an essay called The First Paragraph of the Ambassadors that's 20 pages long. That's sweet. And so I actually really do think that the first paragraph is as good an example of what we're talking about. What other discipline do you get just... Something as badass as that. I mean, you don't get it anywhere else. <laughs> I don't you, think so. You get a literary yeah. critic who's and I'm a huge proponent of literary criticism, and you get it. You write an essay called The First Paragraph of The Ambassador. I mean, yeah. you can't get it anywhere else. No. I this mean, is a sensibility thing. This is yeah. a, This is what we can do, what, we're, what this form and discipline allows us to do. I mean, this dialogue between the critic and the novel. It's just very – this is a moment to sort of appreciate the exchange of sensibility. Yeah. So I, I think I'm going to – let me tell an anecdote, and then I'll read the, okay, <laughs> the first okay, okay. Um So here's my anecdote. I was supposed to read The Ambassadors in 2006 or 2007, So, and I didn't read it then. So I had signed up for a class called The Discourse of the Novel in the Comparative Literature Department in my first year of graduate school, and the professor had put a number of very long novels that are almost too hard to read in a semester – on the syllabus, uh, very complicated. He put Middlemarch by George Eliot, which I did read. He put Tristram Shandy by Lawrence Stern, oh, the great Tristram Shandy. <laughs> yeah, the great postmodern novel of the 18th century. Um, I read that too. Uh, just one long dick joke is, in fact, what it is. Yes. Have you read Tristram Shandy, Tim? No, but it's been on my mother's bookshelf since I was first conscious, and I was writ. I've seen that book for my whole life. It's funny. It's a funny Tristram Shandy complicated book. Yeah. We're going to have to do a Tristram Shandy. Yeah, we should, I haven't read it since. I haven't read it in 15 It'll be years. like Proustian um, for me. It'll be like, yeah. instead of a cookie, I get fucking Tristram Shandy. <laughs> <laughs> so there was Middlemarch, Tristram Shandy, um, To the Lighthouse, and there was Compilate, so there are a couple foreign language books. Uh, I think America by Kafka, something by Clarice Lispector, uh, Beckett. And there was a woman in the class, and what we used to call a non-traditional student, which used to, I, is this language still in use? Non-traditional student? 
Well, you know, they're usually the most tr traditionalist students. <laughs> right, that's true. But they, <laughs> what that means is an older person who's gone back to college. Yeah. And there was a woman, I would say in about her 60s, so about 20 years older than the professor and about 40 years older than us. I got a, I got a couple of stories about my run-ins with non-traditional students, by the way. Okay. Yeah. We'll save mean, them for later. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Because um, um, I, unlike my ungracious contemporaries, choose to learn from the elders. Yes. No, I do too. They can be great. Please. Um, especially, I mean, I am an elder now, but, um, he, so this, this, this lady said to the professor, you know, and this seems so quaint, uh, to me now because, you know, there was like two women on the syllabus, no black people on the syllabus, no writers from outside Europe on the syllabus. And she had a complaint about what was excluded from the mm. syllabus. She said, how can you have a course called discourse of the novel and not have Henry James? And so he graciously acquiesced and shoehorned a Henry James novel in among Middlemarch, Tristram Shandy, Kafka, mm -hmm. et cetera. And he chose the ambassadors. I don't know why he chose the ambassadors, but he said to us, and this guy was in his mid-40s at the time, he said, I was supposed to read this novel in grad school, and I could not make heads or tails of it. I didn't know what was going on. I never finished it. So I'm going to put it on the syllabus to make myself read it. And then the next week he comes in and he says, I stayed up all last night to finish it. I was completely swept away by this book. I, uh, I never read anything like this. It's so amazing. And I, at the time, was mm -hmm. in grad school in my mid-20s, probably the same age he was when he was in grad school. And I start reading The Ambassadors for my Discourse of the Novel class. And I said, I, I don't understand a word of this. I can't make heads or tails of this. I'm not going to read it. So I didn't finish the book. I think I wrote my seminar paper on Middlemarch, um, which is also a long and complicated book, but more readily accessible to people of all ages. And now I'm closer to the age the professor was, and I just read this, and I, I did, in fact, understand it a lot better. And it's definitely a novel that I think is for adults, not in the sense of... Um, sex and violence, which there is no violence in all the sexes between the lines, but that it requires a certain amount of experience. You hear that, 20-year-olds? Don't read The Ambassadors. Don't read The Ambassadors. Read Portrait of a Lady or the Bostonians. And you know what's cool about that? Because <laughs> I didn't read The Ambassadors <laughs> right. this week. And you shouldn't. Oh! <laughs> you read The Bostonians, though, right? Oh, yeah. And the you Boston loved it. Well, The Bostonians, <clears throat> you'll stay tuned in The Bostonians. Yeah. That is um, in our quest to mend the scars of gender relations. Yes. Which weigh and burden us now in our contemporary moment. Perhaps we can turn to the Bostonians. Yes. In the near term to explain our American situation. Oh, absolutely. The Bostonians, first of all, it's great if you're 20 years old. I read it when I was in my early 20s and loved it. And it's so timely. It's a, it's a book about... So timely. Imagine a novel about... Let me see if I can get the names right. Imagine a novel in which Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow are quarreling over the allegiances and romantic affections of, <laughs> of Tommy Laren, uh, Candace Owens. Oh. I don't know. The point is, it's about a Southern aristocratic conservative man. Of uh, you got to so the bell, like right the 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 object of adoration competition. Tommy Lauren, or um, who's that? We got to throw in, um, who's that New York Times tech? 
Oh, Taylor Lorenz. Yeah, Taylor, Taylor Lorenz. That's perfect. That's, that's it. That's it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow fighting over Taylor Lorenz. Yeah. And you, and sort of a, it, and you don't know whether it's like political or sexual. Yeah, and like, it's both. It's both. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it is about a conservative aristocratic Southern white man, a Northern radical feminist lesbian fighting over a talented, brilliant young woman. In America. In America. Whose, whose own political views and allegiances aren't for, fully formed yet. But she's full of talent and promises, like promise of the next generation. Yeah. Oh, the Bostonians is amazing. You must read the Bostonians. You must. Yeah. And that's fully available to you, if you even no matter how old you are. But the ambassadors. Like over 12, I would say. The but, ambassadors write, <laughs> the ambassadors wait 20 years, my, yeah. my friends. Yeah. The hero is a 55-year-old man. I don't think you have to be 55, but you should probably be over 35. <laughs> Yeah, just let John Pastelli explain it to you. Go to his website and yeah. get your GPA nice and high. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, you need to be old enough to have missed some chances mm-hmm. <laughs> and regret them, Right, uh, I would say. But the first paragraph gives you a great sense of the difficulty of reading the novel. So I'm going to read you the first paragraph. Mind you, this is the first paragraph. And he's... Uh, sorry, I will read in a minute, but... This is a moment when the first paragraph was often a, of a novel would often be a description of the setting or a description of the character or something mm-hmm. that oriented you. Nothing like that. Okay, here it is. Struthers' first question when he reached the hotel was about his friend. Yet on his learning that Waymarsh was apparently not to arrive till evening, he was not wholly disconcerted. A telegram from him bespeaking a room only if not noisy, reply paid, was produced for the inquirer at the office so that the understanding they should meet at Chester rather than at Liverpool remained to that extent sound. The same secret principle, however, that had prompted Strether not absolutely to desire Waymarsh's presence at the dock that had led him thus to postpone for a few hours his enjoyment of it, I mean, what's it, Uh, now operated to make him feel he could still wait without disappointment. They would dine together at the worst, and with all respect to dear old Waymarsh, if not even for that matter to himself, there was little fear that in the sequel they shouldn't see enough of each other. The principle I have just mentioned as operating had been, with the most newly disembarked of the two men, wholly instinctive, the fruit of a sharp sense that, delightful as it would be to find himself looking, after so much separation, into his comrade's face, his business would be a trifle bungled should he simply arrange for this countenance to present itself to the nearing steamer as the first, quote, note of Europe. Mixed with everything was the apprehension, already on Strether's part, that it would, at best, throughout, prove the note of Europe in quite a sufficient degree. Sam, could you paraphrase that from a first listening? Hold on, give me a second. Answer is no. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that this dude, this dude right here, <laughs> this dude is ready. Is this dude is ready to get naked? <laughs> well, right. I mean, that's the thing about Henry James is it's so vague, but also so pregnant with some unspoken meaning 
that Freudians and queer theorists love his work because love it, it seems like there's some sexually yeah. unspoken yeah. secret. Yeah. So, I mean, the paraphrasable content is this guy is arriving in England and he's going to go on to Europe and he's going to travel with this other guy named Waymarsh. But for some secret reason, he's happy not to see him. And and that does strike what James calls the note of the novel, because should I tell our listeners what the novel is about? Go ahead. So the novel is about an American man named Lambert Strether from Woolett, Massachusetts. He's 55 years old. He's a widower. His wife and son have both died. And he runs a literary journal that is has for its patron a, a, a widow who is the uh, owner of this really um, profitable company that manufactures some small, humble item of domestic use that is never named in the novel. Because... And the characters joke about it. They ask Strether in Europe, well, what do they make? And he's like, well, I'm not going to say. And they're like, is it unmentionable? And he's like, well, it's not quite unmentionable, but, you know, best we don't talk about it. dildo. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, critics have speculated uh, chamber pot. So, chamber pot. I wish those were still in fashion. <laughs> do you? Yeah. One under your bed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> or or underwear. Um, something that somehow would be vulgar to mention. Um, <laughs> dildos, funny. Um, but anyway. You give one of those to uh, Olive Chancellor in the Bostonian. <laughs> right. Oh. <laughs> Boy. Um, so anyway, Strether wants to marry this woman, Mrs. Uh, Newsom, who runs this company. And he will then be party to her fortune but she basically imposes a condition on their marriage which is that her son chad has gone to europe (laughs) he's a chad he is a chad i mean that's it's very it's very memeified um he's gone to europe and he was supposed to stay in europe a few months just to the way that cultured americans will go to europe and see the paintings and uh, Mm -hmm. go into look at the church architecture and whatnot he stayed for three years and he doesn't seem to be coming back. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Newsom thinks, oh, well, is he taken up with a courtesan? Like, is he... Uh, is he a harlequin? Is he gaming and whoring, you know, et cetera. So she... And remember, this is a time when, you know, uh, it takes letters a long time to cross the Atlantic. We're like, or maybe there's telegraphs, I don't know. But, but we're not text messaging or something. He's not. He's not Instagramming what he's doing. So she sends Strether to Europe to bring Chad back. Mm-hmm. Because he needs to take over the company because she's not getting okay. any younger and he's going to be the one to take over the right, company. Right. And Strether gets there and essentially um, discovers that in his, impre- in his he, what he calls his, impre- he calls that what he has, his impressions, his like aesthetic perceptions of what he sees. And he says in his impression, Chad has been improved by his time there. He's become a man. He's become a suave, confident, good-looking, twenty-something-year-old uh, guy. And what is his situation? Well, he's taken up with this thirty-eight-year-old woman, uh, French countess named Madame de Viennet. Okay. And Madame de Viennet has a husband that she can't divorce because I don't. I'm not even sure divorce is legal in the Catholic countries at this period. John Milton. Yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, it's, we're so literary that instead of Henry VIII, we said John Milton. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but she can't get divorced from her husband, even though he, she's a he's, she says he's a brute. 
and she has a 20 year old daughter that's okay. of marriageable age and she's 38 chad's like late 20s and they have a relationship okay and strether takes the relationship to be platonic like a simple you know she's improving him by sharing with him the culture of europe as this aristocratic oh French yeah woman. oh but i mean it, this you're describing a you're describing a fantasy of mine go ahead yeah no i get it um and he then st himself stays in Europe okay. and doesn't come back and sort of puts off the Mrs. Newsom with these letters. So she essentially, she eventually sends her daughter okay. to bring Strether and Chad back. I mean, it's kind of a funny novel. In yes, a way. yes. Uh, the situation becomes more and more absurd. And Strether eventually decides, you know, I'm not going to send Chad back. Chad should stay or Chad should do what he wants. But in any case, I've seen a culture that has a richer aesthetic surface that answers more of my needs uh, as a man who's missed chances in life staying for so long, single and alone Ooh, okay. in Bullitt, Massachusetts. And so he says, I I'm, I'm going to tell Chad not to go back. He actually owes something to Madame de Viennet for improving him. He can't abandon her. And Chad eventually ends up marrying off her daughter to some guy they, they don't even know. Um, and then Strether, this some is Ukrainian, some Ukrainian. And then Strether, this is a spoiler, but Strether's out in the country one day and he sees them, Chad and Madame de Viennet, and it dawns on him, oh, they're fucking. Oh. And he hadn't known that for 500 pages, he hadn't realized that. And we, we've, I think we as readers figured that out before he did. And I think you're supposed to find it sort of poignant that his life has been so sheltered that he doesn't get that sooner. Man. Uh, and there's another relationship he has with a woman that he takes up with um, named Mariah Gostry. And it seems like they might have something going on, but what it, what ends up happening in the novel is he says um, at the end, you know, really, I, I can't, I can't marry someone else, but my relationship with Mrs. Newsom's ruined. But in any case, I have my impressions. I've had a real experience here. Right. And that's what matters. And the most famous line of the novel is when he's in a garden speaking to a minor character and he's thinking about all the chances he's missed in life that Chad is having with Madame de Viennet. Mm -hmm. And he says to the minor character, live all you can. It's a mistake not to. It doesn't so much matter what you do in particular so long as you have your life. If you haven't had that, what have you had? But for him... Living doesn't mean having sex with an aristocratic woman. It means being so open to experience that you get to treasure all these impressions that become this novel Ooh. and that he becomes the ideal vehicle. for. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's, it's profound and beautiful. Well, thanks for summarizing that. Now I could, I don't ever have to read it. <laughs> you don't have to read it. God. <laughs> now it's worth reading. Just wait till your forties. Yeah. Right? Just wait. Yeah. You have plenty of early period, Henry James, right? Yeah. Plenty of that. Plenty of that. We're long-term practitioners. We we create multi-year plans. Yeah. For a small fee of $9.99 <laughs> a month. We also sell five, supplements. <laughs> $5.99 a month. New tropics. There will be NFTs. Yeah. <laughs> Literary um, enhancements. The chamber of design for the chamber of your consciousness. <laughs> Um, books are a supplement, but you know it's interesting. In the nineties, uh, in the nineties, 
there was a bunch of remakes of or film film adaptations of James novels. Yeah. And they tended to put in the sex that was not yeah, described in the fil- books. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because James is sort of internationalist. And in the nineties it was kind of an end of history thing that you you live through. Globalization, all that stuff. Is James compatible with is he or is he not? Is that a strange question? Is is he compatible with no, the end I of think- history? I think there's a reason there were all those Henry James movies in the 90s, perhaps most famously Jane Campion's Portrait of a Lady with Nicole Kidman, which I love. Um, and then the uh, the Wings of the Dove with Helena Bonham Carter, where she gets completely naked at the end of the, the film in ways that don't mimic anything that happens in the novel, um, that we enjoyed it as high schoolers in the, in the 90s. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I think that what's compatible to James's worldview and the end of history is he always almost always there are some exceptions like the bostonians or the princess casamassima but there's very few references to capital p politics big social struggles in his work everything in his work is takes place in the private life and is about the private relations between individuals and there's not a great sense of the the sweep of history, the mm-hmm. clash of ideologies. And when he does have to write about that in something like The Princess Casamassima, which is about anarchist terrorists in London. And writes indirectly in The Bostonians. Yeah. And it's it, The Bostonians is good because it is indirect, but he takes you right into like an anarchist cell in The Princess Casamassima, and it's not that persuasive. Mm-hmm. Not, you can tell he's never been in an anarchist cell. Um, so... There's that end of history sense that the clash of ideologies is over. In fact, in The Ambassadors, when Strether is in Madame de Viennet's apartment in Paris, he thinks, I could just hear the faint echo of the guns of the First Empire. Mm-hmm. You know, I could just perceive the Napoleonic War, but that's a pale echo. And now the only war is between him and Mrs. Newsom, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that end of history sense that the big wars are over and everything is just the refinement of the private life. It was compatible with the 90s. Yeah. The 90s is a Jamesian decade, I would say. Oh, that's far out, man. That's a far out insight right there. Seriously. Yeah. You can't get that shit anywhere else. No. Put it in the bank. Put it in the bank. The 90s is a Jamesian decade. You're not going to find that anywhere else. Grand podcast abyss. That's it. And for those who've listened thus far and who've made it this far in the in the episode, you've earned it. Put that shit in the bank. That's what you get. The, to, the first part of the episode, first part of the episode is great, you know. But Fairweather fans that drop, they drop out. Second part of the episode, that's where you really deposit the, you really find the treasure. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> um, so you you wrote in the nineties. You were well. You were formulating your impressions to begin. You were written in the two thousands, but you're a product in the nineties in a lot of ways. Yeah, I was born in eighty two. And then you have a novel about, um, about the transition from the nineties to the, to the, to the new millennium, mm-hmm. which you were <clears throat> conscious for. Yeah. Um, it's set in the late nineties. Set in the late nineties. In high school. So in a in Pennsylvania town. Pittsburgh, <laughs> not a Pennsylvania. In a small <laughs> Pennsylvania town. I mean, it's a small city, but it's not a town. <laughs> um, 
and just outside of Pittsburgh, though. That, yeah, that, the not, suburbs. That novel, not novels, suburbs. not metropolitan, really. No, they only go to, go to urban Pittsburgh a couple yeah. of times. It's the suburbs. Yeah. Yeah, driving along, you know, you know, dark woods going to the voodoo shop. Yeah, you know? yeah, which I did. Which yeah. I did. And so, what are your, you know, it's called the class of 2000. Mm-hmm. And tell me, tell me about, tell me about what you're thinking about. Because that, James sort of, this discussion, made, you know, it makes me think of that novel. But tell me about how you as the author, um, how you're engaged by James, engaged by those ideas at the end of history or what that brings up. Yeah, so for me... I mean, the first relevant thing to say about James in relation to my novel, The Class of 2000, is that it violates his rule about point of view. So the first thing a reader will notice, I think, about the novel is that it begins in the first person and then goes into the third person. Because it begins in, the, in like 2014, right? Yeah. With it, the professor. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. I don't know if I give a date, but it begins vaguely in the present mm-hmm. with an adjunct professor who's just gotten word from his estranged sister that this man he knew in the 90s, Kenneth Lydon, has died. And he goes to teach his class, and he breaks down crying in front of the class. Right. Because he he hadn't known that this man he hasn't seen in 20 years meant so much to him. But when he finds he died, it causes a breakdown. And then this leads into the rest of the novel, which is essentially a reminiscence of what had gone on in the nineties mm-hmm. and how he knew Mr. Lydon. And I, I will save most of the plot for our listeners to discover when they buy, uh, the class of 2000, which is available. Yeah, uh, it's a great novel. Almost anywhere books are sold online. John has a way of like <laughs> being five to 10 years ahead of sort of ideological developments and in, in rendering characters and, and making sort of, interventions into those um, that quite honestly will save you a lot of trouble and, and delight you with the prose. So buy the book. Thanks, Sam. Um, so, so yeah, that's the first thing is that I violate the James point of view rule. Cause I think that I understand why he wanted to do that. But I think when you establish hardcore rules like that, you then clamp down on the novelist freedom and there should be, we should be able to experiment with things like point of view and, and not have to always worry that Henry James is looking over our shoulder. Um, so and I will say the class of 2000 violates James in the sense that, you know, I emerged from that novel with a coherent moral um, principle. <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah. Might, it might be the most uh, morally purposeful yeah. of my novels. Also, if this helps to sell it, the sex is not between the lines. Um, it's it's in the lines. Uh, in in the this lines. novel, this is probably my most on the explicit novel. Um, so I thought we'd end today, Sam, yeah. by just reading a passage from the class of 2000 about the end of history. Okay. Because it takes place in 1999, and the narrator, or at least the first narrator, his relationship, he's he's my age, so he was in high school in the late 90s. You mean I can't launch into an hour-long discussion of NATO no. after this? <laughs> no, let's, okay. let's, let's perhaps not. Uh, <laughs> because we should defend it and expand it? Go ahead. Listening, Putin. Um, but um, so 
All I'll say by way of the plot is that the narrator, when he was in high school in the late 90s, had Kenneth Lydon for his English teacher. Mm -hmm. And there's a chapter early in the book where he recounts a, an English class he had where Mr. Lydon went on a digression about the end of history. And I'm just going to read this uh, passage that, uh, you know, a couple, couple pages. Is that okay, Sam? Oh, yeah. And we'll end on this note. He was in the posture I would come to know as the one he always adopted whenever he wanted to get serious, to stop speaking of the history and technique of literature, and to talk instead about larger matters. He reclined in his old wooden desk chair and rocked it back on its rear legs, his hands clasped behind his head, his work boots, which clashed with his business casual khakis, up on the desk, crossed at the ankles. Above him, pinned to the cork strip over the blackboard, the faces of Nathaniel Hawthorne and Emily Dickinson hovered like familiars. By this time, most of the other students were slumped in their chairs, except a few rigid, postured grade grubbers. Outside, we could see beyond the treetops crowding the classroom's second-floor window that the sky, bright all day, had grayed over. The wind pressed the pale, fleshy undersides of the leaves against the window pane. "'You are the class of 2000,' Mr. Lydon said." The Cold War is over. Some people say it's the last real global conflict between ideologies that will occur in history. The only ideologies left are uninventive and reactionary, throwbacks to medieval times. We see this with the nationalists in the Balkans, or with the Taliban in Afghanistan, for example. The only wars will be mopping up operations. Modern society has created unprecedented material comforts. The kings of old England would envy the houses of even the poorest Americans, with their clean running water their flush toilets, their central heating, their reliable refrigeration, their long-distance communications technology. These conveniences were developed in political conditions of increasing freedom, freedom of the individual to think and worship as she pleases. Rob Ross, intelligent troublemaker, raised his drowsy head and called from the back of the room, She? Freedom, Mr. Lydon raised his voice over the mocking boys, to question our default assumptions so that we can keep moving forward. Look at my family, for example. My great-grandparents were, were dirt-poor immigrants who worked themselves to death just to feed their children. They could barely read, and honestly, they let priests do all their thinking for them. My grandparents went to school and learned to read, but the priests kept thinking, and my grandfather's short life was spent breathing bad factory air until it choked him for good, and my grandmother had child after child after child and no time to develop a mind of her own, and my mother and father were just a bit more educated, just a bit more independent, and they had enough that they didn't need to work in factories, and and they knew enough not to bear nine children. And here I am, knowing enough, I guess, to teach. I own a nice house. I've never seen the inside of a factory, or never as a worker anyway. It's been an unbroken upward curve, as Mr. Poljack would say in your geometry class. How many kids do you have, Rob asked. Mr. Lydon stopped rocking in his chair and narrowed his eyes icily at, Ro at Rob, even as he smiled contemptuously. Aaron Ehrlich, who sat in front of Rob, swiftly spun around in her chair and slapped his face. Scattered applause went around the room, and Mr. Lydon's smile warmed and broadened. Meanwhile, the geometric metaphor of the upward curve grabbed the attention of Matt Murphy, math whiz and potential valedictorian, who generally found his English classes dull and frivolous, and who was immune to the melodrama Rob had incited. What if it's a parabola, he said? We could be past the peak on the downward slope and not even know it. 
Mr. Lydon resumed his rocking. He went so far back as to rest his silver head against the board and look up at the ceiling. Did he sketch out the contours of the coming century of peace and progress on its blankness? <laughs>